Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Ned Baker, a filmmaker and a person who wants to go to Westworld. And I'm Caroline Cedar, and I choose to see the beauty in this world. Hmm. That's the way to be. Ned, should we do the whole episode in accents like this? You can lose the accent. Just or, cognition, course, no emotional affect. <laughs> That's how I'm living my life these days. Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the HBO properties we love them in. Uh, I'm kidding, but I have heard that HBO a lot, a lot this month. Jeffrey Wright is like HBO's guy. Yeah, he's uh, he's he's got brand loyalty. The way this podcast works is that Caroline and I take turns curating a five-project miniseries starring an actor we love. The actor I chose for this cycle was Jeffrey Wright, and we have, I think, had a lot of fun looking through his collected works. We've watched a lot, a lot of content. Uh, we looked at his whole stint as Felix Leiter in the James Bond franchise, focusing on the new release of No Time to Die. We watched him play the raw, vulnerable artist Jean-Michel Basquiat in Basquiat, the erratic and magnetic villain Peoples Hernandez in Shaft, and the dryly compassionate nurse Belize, plus a spectral travel agent, plus an angel, in Angels in America. And breaking our record this week with most hours watched for a single episode, we are covering the entire first season of HBO's 2016 sci-fi TV show, Westworld. And here to do that with us is none other than actor and podcaster, Rachel Kenny. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, it's so good to be here. Long-time listener, first-time participant. Oh, yeah. <gasps> We're so excited That's to have great. you, Rachel. I'm so yeah. excited to be here. Those those of you who listened to our Fish Called Wanda episode may recall that our guest that day was Walls Trimble, whom we said co-hosts a podcast called I Have a Question with Rachel and Walls. Well, you've met Walls. Now meet Rachel. And uh, we're delighted to have you on. So. I'm delighted to be here. I also have a little, little secret joy of being here, especially mm-hmm. because listeners... I was called out in an earlier episode <laughs> of this very podcast during the Dev Patel uh, retrospective when you guys were watching the unfortunate M. Night Shyamalan uh, adaptation of Avatar The Last Airbender. Ned, you mentioned that in college. <laughs> well, <laughs> Caroline said she was happy to be any bender except an earthbender. And Ned, you were like, no one wants to be an earthbender. <laughs> and you mentioned uh, someone in college who... That was true for. Not by name. I, I, I subtweeted you, I guess. You did. But <laughs> hey, it was all good. You you said that there was somebody in college who you said that you felt that they fit the criteria of an earthbender and that person was not happy to hear that. <laughs> and that person was me. <laughs> yeah, I was. Yeah, I, I have not. I have not addressed this with you, but you correctly identified that you were being spoken about in that moment. So uh good looking out yeah i don't know do how how does that feel to you now uh do it's you... very funny to me because you were 100 percent right i am an really Earthbender. wow um, that was little baby rachel totally lacking self-knowledge and just being really angry about it well that's <laughs> sometimes come around some, to yeah, embrace yeah. your earthbenderness I had, a t- I had a conversation with my friend sammy where he was like we were talking about directing style and he's like you're a maximalist and i was like no i'm not He's he's like, well, yeah, you just, I was really resistant, but he, uh, he hit the nail on the head. So I didn't know. I, I I would have been willing to recant my assessment if you felt still strongly, but you, no, you were right. 
I'm an earthbender. Wow. I'm just a little sad about it, but that's okay. Like like, like you said, <laughs> no one wants to be an earth. It's mm-hmm. the least graceful style. It's the, like visually, you know, firebending is so exciting yeah. and, mm-hmm. and the waterbending is so graceful and beautiful and airbending is so just delightful and ethereal. And earthbending is like, ho! Oh! And yeah. nobody wants to be, ho! Oh! <laughs> but, you know, you are, sometimes you just are. You know, it takes all yeah. kinds. Yeah, to it make does. a true. nation of the, the four elemental. nations need to live. You know, the yeah. balance is required. When the balance is off, that's when things get messed up. But we can't. I guess I, I could just go on and on and on about that topic. But we will have a lot of other things to cover today with Westworld. So, yes. we'll st- I'll come to you first, Rachel. What is your relation to Westworld? Uh, it is actually one of my favorite shows. Although cool. rewatching it, I have a new relationship to it, which Ooh. is interesting. But yeah, it's an sort earth, of a new Earthbender perspective on Westworld. Yes, truly, and there is a lot of dirt in Westworld. Oh my gosh, especially season one, <laughs> a lot of dirt. It's earthy. Yeah, it's one of my favorite shows. I feel like it's I I really love genre type stuff. I really love sci-fi. I really love fantasy. And boy oh boy, Westworld is genre. It is Western meets sci-fi, and I think another reason that I love the show is it's super, it's just actor candy. Like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, the actors on this, they just, you can just tell, they're just like biting into these juicy lines and just, they're chewing the scenery in a really delightful way that is indulgent, but not obnoxious about being indulgent. Um, in my mm-hmm. opinion, so it's very. As an actor, I I I watch it and I'm like, oh, I wish I could do something like that. I wish I could go ride a horse and then give a poetic speech, while it slowly zooms yeah. into my face. You know. Yeah, and you have a bunch of different kinds of actors who really get to give different kinds of scenery mm-hmm. chewing performances. That's yeah. really not just like it's not like watching. You know, the the Magnificent Seven is one of my favorite Western, and you get seven really great performances, but they are all essentially like tough mm-hmm. cowboys. But you get something like this, like it feels like everybody kind of gets their own little subgenre. You know, the kind of stuff that Maeve is doing is oh, very yeah. different from the stuff that the Man in Black yeah. is doing. Is very different from, you know, anybody who works in the Westworld lab. Totally. And all, all those that. little shifts, like you you kind of alluded to at the beginning, where it's like Dolores speaking in one voice, and then, you know, they'll sort of tell her to, they'll tell the robot to function differently, and the actor just immediately shifts. I can, that was so accurate, Rachel, just to describe it as like candy for actors. Mm-hmm. Even as I was watching this not as an actor, I was like, oh, all my actor friends would love to do this. Yes. <laughs> to do those. I'm speaking in one thing and then all of a sudden I'm flipping and I have no emotions and then I'm going right back into crying. Yeah. 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 And so you watched it live? I did. As I it did. came out? Yeah. I started, I, th- I, I forget when it first started airing. Um, I probably should have looked that up, but hey. It was 2016. No, I was trying to remember too because it, I think... <laughs> I think it started airing in the Obama administration and then, you know, like the election was happening. It was like in October. Yeah, October 2nd, 2016. Wow. Wow. What a time to be alive. Um, (laughs) I mostly started watching it as it was airing. I didn't pick it up immediately as it was airing, but I I picked it up halfway through season one and quickly caught up. Um, And the reason that I picked Mm -hmm. it up was actually I read an article online that was like, so, you know, this isn't super spoilery, but one of the episodes halfway through 
Oh, and we should also say there are a lot of twists and Twisty. turns. And it's very what I would mm-hmm. describe as a puzzle box show. So there mm-hmm. are very much likely to be spoilers in this discussion. Yeah, yeah, we're going to discuss spoilers in here. So be ready. If you, like me, have still, like me a week, a month ago, still have not watched it and you don't want those spoilers, maybe put the episode down and go stream it and yeah. then come back. But this is not super spoilery. It, halfway through okay. halfway through season one, there's an episode where there's, there have been a lot of naked people the whole way through, but halfway through there's an episode mm-hmm. where there's a lot of naked people. Like a lot of naked people, mm-hmm. and they're all like coated in gold, and it's it's like the pariah episode, exactly. Right? Oh, yeah, they're in the town of pariah. And I read an article Sex that was party. like, "This show is so exploitative. This show is worse than Game of Thrones. It's blah 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 blah." And then I read a counter article being like, "No, no, you're missing the point. It's saying how disgusting that is. How how it's critiquing the guests to the park who view this nudity in a certain way." And it's saying, actually, this nudity, it's its making a different level of commentary. It's easy to read the show on a very surface level as a purely just violent, rape apologist, you know, racist, all the bad isms, all the bad, like, classist, blah, blah, blah. It's easy to read it as glorifying all these awful things, but there's another level. And when I read that article, I was like, hmm, I could get into that. I like critiques. That's such an interesting way to be pulled into the show through that that lens. Because yeah, that is definitely something that was on my mind that we can we can get into today. I think we could sort of acknowledge that now. This is there's so 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 much nudity in this show, which is like really an HBO hallmark. But I think of the HBO hallmark as like nudity just cause. And I wouldn't say that this one is just cause. Although I thought that maybe in the first exactly, episode yeah. I was thinking like I was like, why do the androids all have to be naked? But I do think there is some commentary on that. I would say, my opinion, this is doing it more consciously than Game of Thrones, which is just kind of like, let's just pepper our medieval scenes with like, you know, some naked serving women because that's just like fun texture. Yeah. But uh, but that is an interesting lens. And then you discover the sort of actor yeah. candy, sci-fi twistiness yeah. of it all. <laughs> How many times have you seen season one now? Just then um, and now, I think or I've seen a couple season times. one three times. Wow! Um, nice. But season two and three only twice. <laughs> only twice. Mm-hmm. Only twice. Yeah. <laughs> only two yeah. times. <laughs> yeah. How about how about yourself, Caroline? What's your what's your Westworld history? I definitely started right from the beginning. It was a very big, buzzy show. It was the era that I guess HBO is still in now, where it was like, we need a new Game of Thrones. We know Game of Thrones is coming to an end. We need the new big show that that everyone's going to talk about every week. And maybe that's why b- before we started recording, we were having a little bit of a debate about you know, what spoilers to go into and when. But to me, this is one of those like zeitgeisty water cooler shows that you watch live and tweet about right away. Like it is very funny to me, Ned, to think that you like have gone so long and and were managed to be so hidden from the spoilers because my experience mm-hmm. of Westworld was so tied into like the theorizing, mm. the, you know, all of the articles that were like, this means this and this means this and this clue means this. And basically people had solved the entirety of all of the twists in the first season before probably a third of it had even aired. So my experience of the show was so much tied to the fan culture and the discussion around it and sort of how zeitgeisty it was. And and that's what's kept me watching sort of all three seasons is because it is a big 
buzzy show. And I sort of have to keep up with stuff like that for my job. Yeah. That being said, I think that this rewatch really solidified for me that I don't think I really like Westworld. (laughs) (laughs) And it kind of took me a long time to realize that because I do love the pilot. I think the pilot is perfect. Like I watched that episode and I'm like, I want to watch this show forever. And Mm -hmm. then I watched the rest of the show and I'm like, oh, it just kind of, to me, it's like all a downhill slope from the pilot all the way down to what I personally think is like a pretty disastrous third season. I'm curious if they'll manage to sort of reverse that in some way. There's things I like about this show. On the whole, I would say it just feels sort of hollow to me. Like it feels like a, a show that I don't, I don't connect with on a particularly deep level, but it's, that is continually telling me is a very deep show. And so I think I have a disconnect with it on that level. Yeah. I, as you say, missed it. And I just don't know. This is, this is the thing where people, people live in media bubbles, you know, where, I mean, I think we've talked a lot, Caroline, about like, it's hard for us to remember what it's like to not be immersed so deeply in, like, Marvel Cinematic Universe mm-hmm. lore that, like, you know about, like, which obscure villain, like, yeah. might it's be coming Mephisto. back to this future thing. It's never <laughs> Mephisto. Yeah, all, all that shit. So, and yet there's so many people in the world, and honestly, I need to, like, actively remind myself it's most of them that just, like, don't care or mm-hmm. don't know. And I don't know how this missed me, but it so did. And, like, not only did I not watch it, I have no recollection of anybody except like a few people watching i i just did not have this sense of it having been like a for whatever reason i i never had this impression of it being an event show in a way that you would even have in the same conversation as game of thrones Mm. you know i i i felt like it kind of blipped i don't know and i'm not sure if that was just like where i was in 2016 as you as you kind of said on the bond podcast there's with a media landscape that's so crowded Sometimes you just have to be like, I'm not looking at that over there. <laughs> totally. I don't have time for it. And I must have just done that to Westworld. And it's honestly bonkers that I did. Because <laughs> it is it Ned. Seems like I, a very... The whole time I was watching, I was like, how the hell has Ned never yeah. watched this show? This is a show that was made only for yeah. Ned. <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> and it's and it's it's not just did I not just did I not only did I love season one, but yeah, like pre-season one, like by the end of the pilot, and even just like looking at some images from it, I, 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 I can't explain why, why I miss this thing. It makes I no love sense. Western shit. I love androids. I love, uh, you know, Michael Creighton theme park. Oh, yeah. Stuff. You love Jeffrey uh, Wright. Yeah, I love Jeffrey Wright. I don't know. I don't know how I missed it, <laughs> but it's so deeply up my alley. So, yeah, I really, really dug season mm-hmm. one. And that's all I watched. I've only watched season one. Um, I am sort of on the fence about whether I will go on from there because it kind of lives in this beautiful mm, little bubble mm-hmm. for me. It ends on a cliffhanger that like I don't need answered. I'm just like, oh shit, shit's popping off yeah. now. <laughs> um, but I like, I don't actually know that I need to see what that looks like. Uh, I just think that the mystery, as you say, the puzzle box of season one, Rachel, I think is so effective and for me all of the you mentioned genre stuff all of the cowboy genre stuff and sci-fi genre stuff is just it's just hitting me it's just pushing all my buttons so yeah for me absolutely terrific show 
definitely like you know rocketing up into the all-time all-time faves for how like into it i have been and i agree that i think the pilot is probably the strongest Mm -hmm. episode but i was i was on the edge of my seat for the season finale like episode 10 i i i I took pages of notes for all the episodes and episode 10 just has so many like times when i wrote like oh fuck oh what (laughs) what how the what Wait, so when the fuck did everything happen? Okay, (laughs) can I finally ask you the question that I truly have been waiting to ask you this since we started talking about doing Jeffrey Wright? Can you just lay out for me and this, okay, this will be our our full official spoiler alert if you've been listening along and like Ned, you want to enjoy the surprises. Can you just describe to me which things you knew and which things you didn't? Because in our conversation, I never knew what to even like say about the show <laughs> to the point yes. where like before I, I never told you this but before joe cunningham came on for our bond episode i messaged him and was like ned's never seen westworld so in case it just happens to casually come up like <laughs> don't t- t- like you know kind of like make a joke about a twist mention i was yes. really trying to protect you as much as i could oh. but i didn't know what you knew or didn't know so i oh. wasn't quite sure what to like protect you from <laughs> thank you for protecting me from spoilers you know i i, I have mixed feelings about the like spoiler culture and like you can't discuss thing online. Like I kind of think like if it's if it's topical TV, don't go on Twitter the next day. Like that's that's mm-hmm. on you. But I also do feel like, you know, I go back and forth between like you know spoilers aren't everything, but like this show has twists and it delivers them in a cool gut punchy way. I did not know that Bernard was a robot. Uh, a robot until I started watching. <laughs> I didn't know he was. A, I didn't know he was one of the hosts until. I started watching. I got semi-spoiled in that Shea Serrano article that was just uh, like fangirling about Peoples Hernandez, but I didn't know it. I felt like I started to put together some clues, but that was essentially it. So let's talk about like, since we've just gone into spoiler mode, like some of the, what are some of the biggest twists in here? Number one, Bernard is an android. Yes. Rachel, what else would you consider? Big twist Big from twist. season one. We're working with multiple timelines, and that For does sure. not... Mm-hmm. You you get the sense as you're watching, something about this is weird. Something about this isn't right. Yes. Like, wait a second. What? Uh, what? I kept writing, like, how are they having this meeting now if she's still in the park yeah. with them? Like, yeah. And I was like, how has Maeve gone through 20 death loops, but Logan and Billy are still on their, like, bro yeah. vacation? Yeah, yeah. Like, how is that happening? I had no... Uh, I sensed the thing was iffy, but I did not know we were doing multiple timelines. And I never in a million years would have guessed that Logan and Billy were in a previous timeline and that Billy would go on to be dun, 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 the man in black. The man in black. So, the man in black. So that's the biggest one that people solved right away. Like this is one of those things that I think How? is fun about <sighs> fandom yeah. and is also sort of like unfortunate yeah. about fandom. Because I think it's really mm-hmm. fun to like read all these articles and be like, ooh, I think that this theory is right and I really enjoy it. But then the downside is that by the time the show itself reveals it, you're like, oh, well, I already knew yeah. that. Which is not the show's yeah. fault. The show did not encourage me to go read a million articles guessing about it. And I think it's absolutely the sort of thing that if I was just watching in a bubble as you did, Ned, I don't think I ever would have thought to guess that they were an old and a young version of the same character. No. But, you know, if you if you give the entire internet something, I think collectively there's enough brain power to, to solve stuff like that. I guess... Uh, so I'm interested in giving this season a rewatch. I rewatched the pilot this morning 
Um, and they do have lots of great little seeds in the pilot, you know, Dolores saying like, oh, I would never kill a living thing. And then she kills the fly. Yeah. And then like, that's the last moment of episode one. And then her killing Robert Ford is like the last moment of the final episode. That's another big twist. I didn't exactly see that one coming, but I, I, I figured something along those lines would be happening. What clues are there that would allow people to figure out that Billy is man in black? Well, like, I think what does that it's a lot about... Well, you go ahead, Rachel. <laughs> yeah, she, I was going to say, you're the expert here. I watched so many freaking YouTube videos of people analyzing <laughs> this show as it aired. Yeah. Oh. I'm... I bet those are good. Oh, yeah. Oh, if you want recommendations for channels, I've got them. But, like, I am so deep into that speculation culture, which I think, Caroline, you're right, is very fun to be part of, but it also deflates the viewing experience. Mm -hmm. It flattens it in in an unfortunate way, because it's like you love the property so much that you're seeking it out outside of the actual airing schedule, but than the actual viewing experience. Well, anyways. But like, so I watched so many YouTube videos and the analysis <laughs> mm-hmm. that goes into, so Dolores is wearing pants right now, but in the next scene, she's wearing a skirt. Like just yes. costume choices were honestly how a lot of these YouTubers figure it out. Oh, that becomes, he becomes the man in black. Costume choices. As William and Logan go through the park and, uh, or Billy, William, Billy, go through the park mm-hmm. and they get dirtier and dirtier. Like the costume changes that they go through get closer and closer to the man in black's costume. And people were oh, like that's keying in on that. I can see it now. There is so much discussion of Logan, who I think is a great character, by the way, Whoa, uh, just being like, let's go, <laughs> let's go black hat. Let's go black hat. And him being like, no, I don't want to do it. And he just, yeah, he like, he loses the hat. He gets another, he gets dirty. But like the, just the like having it be an arc where he's someone who's like, I refuse to go black hat. And he ends up being the guy who's like whole defining feature is he wears all black all the time. Like, but I just, I just didn't see it coming. It's one of those, what I think is like the the characteristics of a perfect twist where you can only put it together in the scene that's leading up to mm. it, that's when your brain clicks it. Like, I I got it, like, you know, two minutes before they say it, but they start to, they, like, when they've be, when the scene's energy has begun to shift, you start to, like, your brain starts, like, racking possibilities, and then I start to put it together. So that's exactly when I want to figure out the twist. Before they say it, but only right before they say it. Yeah. And then you want to look back and say, oh, all these things have taken on new meaning. And this show, which as you say, like some shows, some some properties have twists just to kind of like catch you off guard. This one, I mean, I guess that's what twists do. But this one is really like, it's invested in twists as a thing, in revelations, in sort of like shocking discoveries that all, as soon as you hear them, make all these previous things make sense. But to Bernard in the opening, in the pilot has a line where he's like, oh, I envy your forgetfulness. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> no. The other so, big twist we haven't mentioned yet is yeah. that Bernard is specifically a robot version of Arnold, which mm-hmm. actually, even when I even when I knew you had gotten spoiled by that Shay Serrano article, I was like, okay, but he really only knows half of this twist. Like, he might know he's now a robot, but he doesn't know how it connects to this whole Arnold, like, mystery that's been threaded throughout. 
and that one I did. That's the that's the only twist that I think I can credit myself with figuring Ooh, out. Good job. Early on. Yeah, really. I good was job. like, I, I I wrote in episode four. I was like, is Bernard like the ghost of Arnold or Damn, something? Man, and that's then, impressive. Yeah, there was just something about like. I could just sort of see like what that would be story-wise with him being the sort of counterpoint, him having been actually a partner to Anthony Hopkins, Robert mm-hmm. Ford, who like had now been put into this. He turned him into his sort of like robot assistant. And particularly like there's so much discussion of Arnold. And I was thinking it is going to be somewhat unsatisfying if this is just revealed to be some new character. It will be more delicious if Arnold has been in front of us the whole mm-hmm. time. And who would that be? That would yeah. be Bernard. Rachel, I don't know if you remember like what you were able to guess and not from so long ago. I, I feel like maybe I was spoiled on the Bernard being a robot thing, but definitely like this is a show where from the pilot, you're like some human is going to secretly be a robot, right? Like you don't make mm-hmm. a show like this with robots that are identical yeah. to humans and not reveal that one of them is a robot at some point. There's a twist in the pilot where I think – I, yes. I, for the first James 15 Marsden. minutes, I believe James Marsden was a human, totally. and then they reveal him. And I think that's a great mini twist. And I think you're right that if you start with that, you've got to pull that trick again bigger. That's the prestige of yeah. it, you know. Is, oh, which we should say, yeah. that this is written by Jonah Noland, who wrote co-wrote The Prestige with his brother, Christopher. So we're sort of revisiting familiar territory (laughs) of twisty things that we love. That's why I like it so much. (laughs) Created by Jonathan Nolan and then Lisa Joy uh, are the co-creators of it. So yeah, we we have some precedent for this sort of twisty, loving this kind of twisty stories on our podcast. The Nolans love multiple timelines. They love a twist. They do. They just love withholding all of the information until the last second. Yeah. What was what was your was there anything that caught you off guard, Caroline, on your first watch that you recall? Was there anything that like a surprise? You mean? Yeah. Were there any twists that you were like that actually like hit you as intended? No, I think that everything was fully spoiled, <laughs> to be honest. And Ouch. that's not that's like on me. Like I'm not you know I saw I sought that stuff out because I did find it fun to listen to. I think yeah. that, like I said, I was so invested in the pilot. And I had the same experience rewatching it. At some point, I it becomes a show I go from being super invested in and watching hyper specifically to just being almost a show I'm putting on in the background because I'm not that emotionally invested. And then at some point, like watching the sort of YouTube videos Rachel's talking <laughs> about is almost more fun for me. I think that there's something like, I don't really emotionally connect to Westworld. And I think that the stuff that I love deeply as art, I just I need to emotionally connect with a little bit more than I do with this show. So maybe that would be the question I would throw back at both of you. Like, is this a show that you enjoy both intellectually and emotionally? Or is it more of one experience over the other? For me, I I think that's a very common critique of not just this show, but a lot of Nolan properties writ large, Christopher and Jonathan Nolan, mm-hmm. um, that mm-hmm. there's a lot of super impressive, masterful technical skill, a really great intricate narrative skill but a certain coldness a certain distance a certain empty i think you described it as hollowness earlier and i think that that there are times when this show absolutely um veers into that territory of being a lot of you know sound and fury signifying nothing a lot of it's very 
technically impressive, wow, what beautiful vistas, but my heart isn't touched. But I think that part of that is intentional. Part of it's unfortunate, and part of it's intentional, of they are intentionally putting in a layer of detachment, a layer of removal, because they're they are asking you to very critically analyze what does it mean to be human? What makes a human? What makes you care about another being? And so I think that there's a somewhat intentional remove to force you to analyze in a very robotic way. Does emotion... We, these robots are turning emotion on and off. Mm-hmm. And, and we as humans can kind of do that too when we're watching a show. Mm-hmm. And when you turn off your emotion and you actually just look at what's happening, do you care? I think it's genuinely asking that question. And I think that another key question that it asks, literally, quite explicitly, is have you ever questioned the nature of your reality? And Mm -hmm. so I think that partial remove, which is very Brechtian, uh, a theater director and writer from Germany um, in the mid-20th century, Bertolt Brecht, his whole sort of, (laughs) this is my actor training coming out, his whole- (laughs) No, let us have it. His whole theory is that you want to, quote unquote, alienate the audience. You want to alienate the audience so that they're not so invested, because if they become so invested, they can't actually think about why this is impacting them and why they care. If they're as emotionally in it as the characters- they're not learning anything. They're just wildly experiencing things. They're being overcome by a tsunami of pure emotion, and they can't sort through it. So Brecht would very intentionally alienate the audience, create distance, remind them constantly, uh-uh, you're just watching a show. You're not part of this. You're just watching this. This is constructed. This is created. So that the audience could then go, oh, right, I'm not part of this. So then what do I think about it? I'm not the one this is happening to, so what do I think about it? And I think that this show is doing a similar thing of intentionally alienating the audience sometimes in order to force them to step back, not get too involved, not get too emotionally invested and overwhelmed so that they can say, well, what does this mean? I definitely do like getting emotionally invested in things, but I guess maybe I don't entirely need it because I would say like, if I, as I'm scrolling through my notes and like reminding, I like try to jog my memory of all these moments. I did not have a super emotional connection to too many things in this. I felt emotional when um, Billy William, the guy who I always just think of as Mick Poyle from Always Sunny in Philadelphia, uh, but he like tells Evan Rachel Wood that he's getting married, and she has like a she does like a smiling, sad little moment. That was like mm-hmm. one specific moment I can cite as being like, oh, I felt that. But a lot of it, I wasn't engaging with it emotionally, but I was really interested in it philosophically. And that I enjoy a lot. That has been true of a lot of a lot of my favorite shows is there's like, I don't know, philosophical shit to dig into. It's just really like one possible layer. But this show is very philosophical. It's very interested in, the existential crisis, it dramatizes that on a number of moments. It continues to sort of debate the idea of consciousness, things I find very satisfying. There's a, a video game that came out after this. Really, so There's really two video games that this kept making me think of. Those are the media 
franchises this most reminded me of. One of them is Red Dead Redemption, which is, I think, Red Dead Redemption 2, I think, is one of the greatest video games and maybe even pieces of media uh, ever. I think it's just so exquisite. But it definitely is, like, that's the Westworld experience of, like, going into a cowboy world where you have morality to navigate. This other video game is called Detroit Become Human, and it's a choice-based video game featuring Jesse Williams from Grey's Anatomy. (laughs) Whoa. Well, do I? Love as an actor. Sorry, well, I really went on a spiral of trying to remember how Jesse Williams fits into our culture as a person. Anyway, not really. Yes. He plays an android, one of three androids, who is sort of like becoming deviant. That is to say, like stopping their, like starting to break their programming and like leading an android revolution. And that and this, I think, really satisfyingly get into a sci-fi question that I find very interesting about like at what level has AI advanced to the point of consciousness and then what is the ethical relationship of humans to that consciousness mm-hmm. so that question I continue to find very satisfying and I, I and I feel like it asks interesting questions about that and like everyone has a path like predestination determinism agency uh, ethics in our entertainment like entertainment giving people what they want with their basest side versus not Uh, i would say there were like basically consistently through the whole first season i was at regular intervals having moments where i'm like oh wow huh that is an interesting question that they've raised there and those are like punctuated with like cowboy gun battles (laughs) which i can just watch all day so so yeah again like artistically as a sort of a genre experiment a really effective blending of two sort of disparate genres and philosophically not that i am you know any philosophical expert by any means or that i feel you know well qualified to like unpack these questions but as something that was raising those questions i continue to find it really satisfying as well as just like finding it quite clever in the way it's all plotted out Mm -hmm. and the little things they sort of create i think you both raise very good points i really like this Brechtian analysis of the show, particularly Rachel, I think for me, like what stops me from connecting with it fully, it's like two things. Yeah. One is that I actually think that the questions this show is asking are just inherently not interesting to me. Hmm. Like then that's not fault of the show, but like I, like in the way that I just love things about immortality, like anything about immortality and I'm fully invested things about like consciousness and robots and like, can robots take over and do robots have consciousness? I just like don't care. I think it's because maybe I was raised on Star Trek and I'm like, yeah, androids like Data are our friends. We don't need to stress about it. It's fine. Like they're, (laughs) I just really don't connect to like, will the robots kill us? I'm like, I don't know. I don't care. They're nice. So some of that is just me personally. And then the other half is I think sometimes, I think the show can act smarter than it actually is like it definitely throws a lot of philosophy out there it like throws big words at you but sometimes i feel like it's maybe a show that's throwing a lot of big words out there but doesn't always fully know what they mean or is able to fully communicate what they mean so i agree there's like lots of interesting words there but i don't know if they then you know connect to something deeper in me that then made me think philosophically differently about the world. I think that's a totally valid criticism. I th- And I think that you mentioned earlier that it's sort of a downhill slope for the whole show, the pilot being the best episode and then diminishing returns as you go on. And I think that part of those diminishing returns 
is it gets too damn smart for its own good, where as it goes on, those questions get a little bit more like, okay, all right, I get it, you're smart. Okay, you're smart. Okay, sure, fine, mm-hmm. we're smart, we get it. Like, <laughs> And I think that it takes itself so damn seriously sometimes. It does. Very serious in the way, And yes. like, it just can be a little much sometimes. And and as it goes on, I think that that self-importance gets worse and more, you know, heavy and ponderous. And the fun of it, just the like, yeah, we're shooting people sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Like, that becomes uh, more self-serious, too. And I think that's a totally valid criticism on your part there. I wish that something I that struck me watching the pilot, I was starting to feel this towards the final episode, but I'd forgotten how many little, like, other random guests you see in the pilot where you really see the way this park is functioning, which is something I really, I, I, I want to continue to dig into is this, like... I wrote down the clues of like, okay, in the in the pilot, Sizemore, who who I despise, is like ten <laughs> percent of the staff. That's two hundred androids that we're taking out. That's two hundred hosts, and I'm like, okay, so okay, so there's two thousand actors, and then uh, Teresa at one point mentions like there's fourteen hundred guests on a day. Uh, uh, what's his name? Logan says like forty k a day, and I'm like, okay, forty k a day. So I do not, I cannot visit Westworld, unfortunately. <laughs> but like the mechanics of that are fun for me. I I somewhat lament that as it goes along, it kind of feels like it takes place in a park that has like no other guests except for the yeah. ones you're mm-hmm. seeing, and is so big. Can I just say the cost, like, this is not a cost efficient park. It does not need to be the size of a full on national park for, like, the amount of land upkeep they have to do. And, like, they'll have whole storylines where the robots are just off by themselves killing each other. And I'm like, you guys, you're just making waste for yourself to fix up. Like, if there's not a guest there, don't have the rope. Just put them in sleep mode. What are you doing? If these are are NPCs, non-player characters, like, they don't have to activate if there's no guest. They don't. Why are there whole scenes where just Dolores and Teddy are hanging out? I'm like, this is not an efficient use of park resources. <laughs> I'm interested in that idea. That, I don't know if they've like dug into that, but so so you're right. So like playing Red Dead Redemption to me is a good analog for where we are now at creating this. So it's on a screen. That's one thing. It's not even VR, which it may be within the next ten years, and then maybe in fifty years it'll be a, a, a an AI thing. But like. You can go anywhere in the world. The world is huge, but it doesn't like quote unquote exist when you're not there because the video game doesn't render it. I am interested and feel like maybe the show didn't have time for this, but like I would be interested in them trying to generate a story based reason for, yeah, as you say, why Teddy and Dolores go off by themselves when there's like no one around and why it isn't like an automatic shutdown. I feel like you could argue something about like the robots. They, you know, it's like they practice with each other. Right, there is a right. line about them learning from each mm-hmm. other, right? You can definitely hand wave it away, but it's the sort of thing where I'm, my stage manager brain is like, this is not, this is not efficient. Yeah, it's not financially <laughs> efficient. It's not logistically efficient. Yeah. Yeah. The finances of it are a little uncertain. I, I don't have a sense. And I feel like they intentionally leave something sort of ambiguous. And, you know, I don't know. Do we ever go outside the park in the later seasons? Mm-hmm. Oh, boy, do we. Boy, do we. Okay, I guess of course we do. Yeah, because like, did the, 
to the like armies of i don't know if i want to know about spoilers for those but right now on the question of should i watch seasons two and three i'm like kind of landing on the side of like i don't know that i will i don't know that Um, season three is worth it um uh i mean i love it but it is the weakest by far of the three seasons Uh but and very different too very different but season two i would say is worth it solely so that you can watch episode eight Kiksuya, mm-hmm. which is one of the best, most beautiful, simple, eloquent episodes of television that has ever been created, in my opinion. It's so yeah. beautiful. And speaking uh. of like, does this show emotionally touch you? Often not, but I weep during that episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do we go to Samurai World? Um, a spoiler alert, we do. And it is <laughs> bloody as hell. If there's one thing I like as much as cowboy shit, yeah. it's samurai shit. Uh, truly. Anyway. I mean, literally, Ned, how would you never watch this show? Like, I really feel like your top five favorite things are all in this show. Crowded media landscape, Caroline. Yeah. That's the only explanation I can come I up mean, with. I mean, I do. I do understand. Um, I, I was interesting. There were things that happened in season two that I thought happened in season one, like had been kind of conflating mm-hmm. them. In my mind, like season one was the best, then season two, and then season three is the mm-hmm. worst. Rewatching, I was like, oh, I feel like a lot of the things I was remembering liking about the show actually, I guess, did happen in season two. So in that sense, I guess that's a recommendation for season two from someone who's a little bit lukewarm on the show in general. I think season two, the creators kind of run into a problem of like, okay, well, we solved our puzzle box. Now what? Oh, shoot, we have to break it and scramble everything again so that there's a new puzzle box. And I kind of Mm -hmm. wish they had just dropped the pretense and just told a straight up story. Because they just twist themselves in knots trying to do more timeline. Am I allowed to swear on this show? Yes, please do. It's more timeline fuckery. And it's like, (laughs) (laughs) it's like, uh, uh, the timeline fuckery, I guess, is fine, but you didn't need it. It's like scrambled. It's not like a twist like the way this one is where you don't know. It's sort of like the, the show, it's like flashback structure. So it's like you're going along and like, oh, what happened? And then oh, we're filling it in with flashbacks. But it just gets very confusing to keep track of. At least that's my memory of it. It is confusing mm-hmm. to keep track of. And there's like, it is flashbacks, but it's like also flashbacks happening on three different tracks or two different mm-hmm. tracks. So it's like, yeah, they're all flashbacks, but they're, they're not all flashbacks to the same time. And it's it, it's just unnecessary. Well, I think they also felt sad that people solved season one so quickly like i think they were not <laughs> expecting that by the time like three episodes of there and people were like oh yeah william is the man in black and bernard is an android and also he's arnold so they were like oh we want to make it harder to solve so they made a season that was probably too confusing for its own good oh, absolutely people really just need to come to peace with that the scream 2 is a movie where and i love the scream franchise but they switched the killer because people figured it out People like conjectured it, so they rewrote it. And now the movie like doesn't really function. And I just really wish people would look to the long. I mean, I guess like movies live and die, especially for their like shareholders, their like uh, mysterious secretive boards of financiers. They live and die on like how things actually happen at the box office. And it's, I guess, same for TV show. But I really wish people would be like, who gives a fuck if Reddit solves it when it's actually right. airing? Like, just make it what it. Just right. make it because for those it people, it's to fun to solve it. And then there's people that are never going to read a Reddit thread and just enjoy it while it's airing. And like, just yeah. let those two camps exist without feeling like you have to best the Reddit camp yeah. or whatever. Indeed. Indeed. Can I bring us back to 
the ostensible theme of our show. Oh, yeah. Jeffrey Wright. <laughs> Which is Jeffrey Wright. Because I'm yeah. curious to know, Rachel, what your general your general relationship to Jeffrey Wright is and, and where Westworld features into that. As for my relationship with Jeffrey Wright, um, I have met the man once. <gasps> Rachel, what? I have. What? Yes. I was oh, about to shit. joke like, oh, do you know him personally? And now you drop this. I, one degree uh, on of us. separation here. Holy cow. Tell us. Get him on the podcast. Rachel, do you have his number? Uh, I do not. <laughs> I And I know for a fact he would not remember meeting me. But um, I did a little teeny tiny little role in the final episode of Boardwalk Empire. And he was on Boardwalk Empire. And we did not have scenes together, but I was going in to record ADR, which is when you re-record your dialogue because the sound quality of the initial record was just not good enough or whatever, not what they wanted. So I was going in to record ADR for my little, one little scene. And um, as I was going into the studio, he was leaving the studio. He had just wrapped up recording his ADR. (sighs) And the sound engineer, very sweetly, very kindly, was like, oh, Jeffrey, do you have you met Rachel? And he was like, no. <laughs> and the sound engineer was like, yeah, this is Rachel. She's coming in to record her ADR for her scene. She's got a, a nice scene in the final episode. And he was kind of, Jeffrey Wright was kind of like, okay. <laughs> and he went on his way and I went into the studio. <laughs> Wow. wow. Yeah. I'm starstruck. Yeah. Your brush with fame. Yeah. I mean, he was nice about it, but it was clearly, he was like, I, why are you telling me yeah. this, sound engineer? Yeah. <laughs> um, right. But yeah. So I have met him That's the so one funny. time. Wow. 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 But wow. my impression of him as an actor is, I think like the show, he can be exquisite and he can take himself very seriously. Like, you know, you get the sense of these actors, and you've talked about it before, of like with Christian Bale, that sometimes they might be a really good actor, but they might not be so fun to be around on set. Mm-hmm. And that's just sort of my my gentle impression of Jeffrey Wright. Mm-hmm. It's not like, I think he's probably a hell of a lot more fun than Christian Bale on set. But um, but I do think that he takes himself pretty seriously as an actor. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. he seems like a very detail oriented actor, a very perfectionistic actor. And that can lead to really beautiful, exquisite performances. Like I think that his speech in Angels in America about the Star Spangled Banner, Mm. the note for freedom being so high, nobody can... Like, that's just an aria. And oh, my Mm -hmm. God, he does such a beautiful, magnificent. And he's a magnetic actor, too. You just like your eyes are drawn to him. It's just like. But I I do think that sometimes he can be very serious, which can come across as a little like a theater actor in a way, a classically trained theater actor. But damn, does the man look good in glasses and a beard? He pulls it off. Sure. (laughs) Sure does. Yeah, part of the joy for me of doing this podcast series has been seeing all of these different versions of Jeffrey Wright that, like, frankly, I didn't know exist. But there was actually something really lovely about coming back to Westworld and being like, oh, this is the Jeffrey Wright I know. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the warm hug of a little serious robot man that like, <laughs> is, is my entire mental image of who Jeffrey Wright is. Yeah. So... This leads me to the other question I had, Ned, beyond mm-hmm. the question of what Westworld spoilers you, you you knew. 
like, what did make you pick Jeffrey Wright for this podcast? Because <laughs> I realize my image of him is so tied to Westworld. Mm-hmm. Is it is it the Felix connection from James Bond that really is like what sold you on him as sort of like an actor to follow? It was Felix. It was Source Code. It was Clips of Angels in America. It was probably like those things. Plus just like seeing him in a handful of other like, yeah, uh, uh, Hunger Games. It's funny that some of the movies that really... Yeah, I forgot on Hunger Games. Hunger Games and Source Code would probably be two of the things that pulled me in. And now I'm like, so why didn't I choose those for these? And I think it's just like, <laughs> I felt like they were going to show me. Source Code is one of my faves. It's a lot like Bernard, but just like twisted a little bit more to be a villain. So it's like separate. Let's leave aside the like Bernard is an android for a second and just take the personality of that guy as he is presented to us for the first six episodes. You have a similar thing with the sort of scientific antagonist in Source Code, but he has like, it's like it's turned to this sort of like bitter, like I'm better than the like the fools that surround me kind of thing. He's very quiet, muttery, cerebral, and like ultimately a little bit cold and callous. That performance his sort of like weird nerd in Hunger Games, which I really like, but I felt was like too small a role to focus on for this. Those would be some of the things. And and also like, I think it's because he had done a fair share of theater and the public theater. My mom used to work at the public theater that he was just sort of like a household name. Like he was always like mm. pointed out to me in things. Interesting. That's sweet. And yeah. I never like dug into that. He was, you know, he did a number of George Wolf productions besides the Angels in America. He also was in this, um, there was, have any of you all ever, have you, have you all ever heard of this like reading of Romeo and Juliet that was done as a fundraiser that had Kevin Klein and Meryl Streep? No. no. What? This oh, was God. like, this was like 10 years ago or 15 years ago. So Kevin Klein and Meryl Streep at like, you know, Devil Wears Prada age played Romeo and mm. Juliet. I think that Jeffrey Wright was Tybalt. Christopher Walken was Mercutio. Um, <laughs> the cast goes on and it was just like, just wow. like stacked. Wow. And, I've, and it was, you know, it was, a, it was a benefit. It's the kind of thing that like, if I were like a wealthy New Yorker, Insta buy, although I'm sure it cost like thousands <laughs> of dollars to go, but I would have been like, oh, I love them. So I don't know. He just like he just was like a uh, respected, but I also felt underappreciated actor, and that's something I'm interested in continuing to do. Well, we do a little bit of both in this podcast, but something that I find really satisfying and I want to continue to do is like shine the light on people who. Maybe known, but I'm like, not enough attention is being paid to the work these people are being mm-hmm. done, are doing. And what did you think now that you like watched him in one of his, like, what I would say is probably at the moment his most like culturally defining thing? Mm-hmm. Like, what was it like to sort of finally experience this performance? It was cool, though, again, I have to say, like, it missed me. Like, I, I, I do not feel like I have had this idea of it as his culturally defining mm-hmm. thing, but I thought it was great. I thought that for the first few episodes, there was, there was one episode like mid-season where I wrote the note I was like he's great for this part but I think it's like a cakewalk for him you know Hmm. he doesn't have like that much to do in some episodes besides just sort of like quietly exposition around being like well the code has to be updated if we have to do this (laughs) that sort of thing so well no that was a very good Jeffrey Wright you should have been doing that throughout this whole (laughs) maybe (laughs) perhaps now that I think of it I'm gonna overthink it next time but I do think the like reward to the character is in his last three episodes I think he does a really solid job bringing that sweet dad pathos um 
seeing him like he gets a lot of mileage out of both like staring wistfully at a photograph of his son, but also this like memory of him reading him Alice in Wonderland, which made me just be like, give me the Jeffrey Wright Alice in Wonderland audiobook or any audiobook read by Jeffrey mm. Wright. I just want that that voice. But I think he brings that sort of heart. I don't know like what to make of this because he can be so cerebral, but I feel like the heart is there a lot of places. I don't know if this is me imposing my own sort of extracurricular outside of the acting itself ideas of Jeffrey Wright on him, of him being like a well-respected, well-liked workhorse actor. But I just feel like he's he's easy to empathize with. I don't know. There's something about him that like makes you feel for him. And so when he gets to do the really interesting stuff and have his like, he, he has an existential I'm a robot crisis twice in the first yeah. season because he gets rebooted <laughs> and finds out twice. They're both really... I think cool little pieces of, as you mentioned, Rachel, like scene chewing acting, but also like, I'm like, Oh buddy, I'm, I'm feeling for yeah. you. And I also think, uh, um, Tendiwe Newton, who is the other one who kind of has the, like, what am I freakouts? She also does a really great job with those. Although her character is very different and a lot more sort of hard edged than his. Yeah. But yeah, I thought it was really, I, I, I was not disappointed by his work in this. I was, a couple times like oh this isn't maybe as substantive as i thought but in mm-hmm. in all all things considered particularly where he like comes into his role in the story in the final parts of season 1 i found it very satisfying one little tiny moment i loved and this was because on our basquiat episode our guest jules was just talking about how jeffrey wright likes a lot of like business and little props mm-hmm. and little things and there's mm-hmm. that one scene where Anthony Hopkins is first like putting Bernard online and he's like mm-hmm. telling him how to clean his glasses, but he's like, hmm, do it more as an interesting character choice rather than just cleaning them. And I was like, whoa, what a meta commentary on like how Jeffrey Wright acts. <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, 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 that that beat should mean more when you clean your glasses. Mm-hmm. That is such a good meta moment, I think, because yeah, it's like what, he, what he's theoretically doing is programming the android to be more like the deceased Arnold and saying, no, when he cleaned his glasses... It was always a moment to collect his thoughts. But it really is also just like a director being like, again, new choice. Mm-hmm. Do more. I think you, you're totally right, Caroline, that it was like, it is this like directing actors moment, which is, uh, you know, again, like I think a really fun layer to look at this whole thing on that it's like, this is just sort of a weird twisted, like, like refracted glass to look at all of acting as well as like all of theme parks and like theme parks right now don't have androids that you can like like fucking kill but they do have actors dressed up as you know mary poppins and gaston Mm -hmm. that you can theoretically like go up to and be like oh you're a very you're a very bad man will you take a picture with my kid you know well like whatever Mm -hmm. there already is this weird like agency thing going on in those places but but yeah i thought that was a really nice really nice moment he also there was some other moment that made me think of basquiat he like trips over his words at a point this is a performance that i think is relatively like low on mannerisms compared to some of the other ones we've looked at where like basquiat is like very sort of like twitchy lots of like you know vocal tics and like like uh fidgety movements and you know people's hernandez he's like layering on an accent that he learned from this guy and that he is like has all these sort of like high key like violent gangster mannerisms this one is like pretty like toned down but i thought you know richly inhabited by him Mm -hmm. 
Should we go through some of the other cast members? Like, would that be I a way to love to? I feel like we must lampshade the fact that, at least to me personally, like our wonderful guest Rachel and Evan Rachel Wood. <laughs> in my mind, like you're just linked. <laughs> I think you look a lot like her. I think you have a similar energy to her. There's kind of like a connection there. In my mind, like I, whenever I think of Evan Rachel Wood, I think of Rachel Kenny. So I do feel like it feels, in addition to your like deep knowledge of Westworld, Rachel, it just feels appropriate to me that we have like our own Dolores standing <laughs> on our podcast. I don't know if this is if this is a weird thing I projected onto no. you or if this feels appropriate to you, but No, I love it. I lo- I mean, I did dress as Dolores from season 2 when I went to Comic-Con. So, oh, yeah. And I gotta see there that. was another time when I was wearing some outfit and I realized, "Oh my god, I accidentally dressed exactly like Dolores from a different part of season 2." <laughs> And no, I, I think that there's definitely, I, I, I feel the psychic link as well. I'm just, mm-hmm. hey, any casting directors out there that are listening, if yeah. you ever want to cast us as sisters, I'm down. I was going to say, that would be, I would love that. Please, let's yeah. put it out into the universe. Put me in season four. I'll be an early build of <laughs> Dolores. But, um. Early <laughs> No, you know, she's, she's one of the oldest robots. She's the oldest robot in the park. You wouldn't know it. Yeah. Yeah. So how do, do we like, feel about Evan Rachel Wood? Yeah, exactly. Do you, do you. Is this like a cornerstone Evan Rachel Wood performance for oh, you? Oh, absolutely. I think she's knocking it out of the park, man. I think she's killing mm-hmm. it. She's especially like, I think she should have gotten an Emmy for her work in season one, personally. Um, I think Jeffrey Wright actually did get an Emmy for season three of this, which is did he? mystifying to me up. because I, I think he should have gotten it for season two, not season hmm. three, because he was barely in season three except for one episode which is the one that he won the emmy for but um the old uh, honorary emmy yeah the we fucked up emmy the, oh we should have given this before but there's actually a great mm-hmm. i believe he did not win it looks like he's been nominated oh, gotcha. for all three seasons interestingly season one and season two uh, sorry season one season three he was nominated supporting season two he was nominated lead that makes sense i think he has the meatiest his season two arc i would say is the meatiest for him Oh, yeah. Well, that's a sell on season two for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think Evan Rachel Wood is great. I think she's doing the best work of her career. Um, mm-hmm. Go her. And I just think that it's such an interesting cast of, as you were saying, Ned, kind of really good, strong actors who are not overlooked exactly, but maybe haven't totally gotten the accolades and the attention that they deserve. I think she's one of them. I think Tendiwe Newton is also another one. Um, totally. I mean, Anthony Hopkins, he's fine. He doesn't need... <laughs> he's gotten <laughs> his accolades. He's doing okay. <laughs> he's not under-recognized. The poor, underlooked third Hemsworth brother, which will never fail to be. Like, sorry to Luke Hemsworth, but always very funny to me that there's a clear hierarchy of the Hemsworth oh, yeah. brothers in our culture and that he is... <laughs> Sadly, I keep getting, I keep forgetting, I keep getting his name twisted and remembering because he's because he, if anybody's seen The Good Place, there's Larry Hemsworth, the fourth yeah. Hemsworth brother, who's like a he's like a model and a neurosurgeon. He's like on the ugly Hemsworth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Always kept thinking about him on this one. I was like, is this Luke or Larry? I get the I can never remember. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Maeve, who you mentioned, is like she's probably they're all really enjoyable, but I I love what she is up to, and mm-hmm. she definitely. I think, as you mentioned, Tendiway Newton is someone else who definitely fits the, like, underused, underappreciated model, mm-hmm. in my opinion. And she did win the Emmy for season two, I think. Oh, oh she cool. earned it. <laughs> I yeah. mean, okay, so everything I've, every complaint I've had about Westworld, 
all of that goes out the window with Maeve. And I actually oh, yeah. think the reason I've kept watching, like, I am so invested in Maeve's journey. I'm so locked into every element of Maeve. I just wish this entire show was just Maeve. I just love it. I love everything about it. That's where the questions of consciousness are most interesting to me and controlling your life. Like, it's it's like there's the Maeve show that for me is an A+, and then the Westworld show that's like a B-. And so I keep... You know, I'm yeah. like, I, well, I can't stop watching. Like, I need to see what happens to my girl Maeve. So she, that was all a joy to revisit. That's the tragedy of the show is that when it's great, it's so great. And then when it's yeah. not, doesn't live up to that, you're like, I know what you could be. Why aren't you being that always? Yeah. Yes. Maybe I won't rewatch because right now I'm just in the high where I'm like, I just, but there was no, no episode was a dud for me. So I don't agree on the B minus Westworld, but I do agree on the A plus Maeve show. Every time it cut so to her, mm. I'm like, this is going to rock. Whatever she gets up to, it's going to rock. You've got to watch season um, two because it's also a good Maeve season. Yes. It is such a good yeah. Maeve season. Oh, like, shit. unreal. Okay. It's not okay. a good right. Dolores well, season. That is, uh, you're not going to like it's Dolores. It's not a Dolores season. season well, two? she's in it a lot, she, but, but it's a different take. Okay. And I don't think well executed on either the creators mm-hmm. or partly Evan Rachel Wood's part. I think it, she gets better in season three. But yeah, it's not a Dolores season. Dolores' season one arc is so good. Yeah. It just works so well. Yeah. I think season wow. one is... So great for Dolores and Man in Black. Season two is so great for Maeve and Bernard. And season three mm. is not great for anybody, but maybe mm-hmm. best for Dolores, I guess. Yeah. Maybe I'll watch a, a recap analysis. of season three. I'll watch season two, and then season three, I'll try to find like a couple different like YouTube, <laughs> like half hour super cuts of yeah. the of the highlights and that'll that honestly it will depend on like when they do a season four and if it is supposed to be good because if they're Mm -hmm. like season four sucks as well then maybe i'll just i think they're shooting season four right now great yeah i wonder what it'll be Uh, i have no idea (laughs) future world who knows roman world there's so the movie the original so i will just i'm gonna interrupt real fast to say like The this is based on I had it in my head as being based on a novel, but that's there. It's not a novel. There's a 1973 film written by Michael Crichton, enemy of the American amusement park. And in that it is essentially like it follows two visitors at the park. The park is just called Delos. So it's basically following like a Logan and a Billy, like one guy who's been there before and one guy who hasn't. And then Android sentience kind of like spreads like a disease and it ends in a a three-part rampage through Westworld, Medieval World, and Roman World. Amazing. And then there was a sequel called Future World that was supposed to be quite bad, but it included one that was like in outer space. And then there was a five-episode TV series called Beyond Westworld, in which the Westworld head of security tries to stop an evil scientist from using androids to take over the world, which feels like, I don't know about the sort of like behind the scenes like well what the board is really interested in angle that's kind of just hinted at through all of season one i'm Mm -hmm. assuming it's like super soldiers because i just feel like it's always super soldiers Mm. but (laughs) i'm like isn't it always just like someone wants an army of super soldiers but ned i have to say i didn't laugh in the moment but your casual description of michael Crichton as the enemy of theme parks was so funny to me (laughs) well I mean, Rachel, you're also a huge Jurassic Park mm-hmm. fan, right? Absolutely. It's Jurassic Park is one of the most perfect movies ever made. Yeah. Totally. There we agree. And it's just all theme parks gone wrong. Yeah. From my perspective of seeing Westworld, this show, season one at least, also is like a terrific work of genius. I'm like, the dude just really felt, I mean, <laughs> maybe, he, I don't know, that, that could be being, looking at like, 
two works out of like a whole career and being like, look, the man hates amusement parks. But clearly he saw them as an interesting angle to explore like reckless consumption based entertainment culture Mm -hmm. as a very like vivid way to look at like what happens when you just put when you're like using technology, not because you should, but because you could. And uh, and it's for people's like if it's if it's for profit based entertainment and like the park goes wrong is just a simple I mean literally it's like he has an Android park that goes wrong and he has a dinosaur <laughs> park that goes wrong. It's kind of like the same like overall structure in terms of commentary on that. Yeah, Although, you're very correct. Um but uh but yeah. But I they're, they're both, both I mean both like if he wants to make another park, I'll watch it. Yeah. True. Yeah. Well he's dead now, but uh but maybe he did others that have like not been mined. The secret yeah. parks. Yeah. Man, I went through a big Michael Crichton phase in a like elementary and middle school. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. I remember sitting on the playground in like fifth grade, sitting on the top of the slide, reading Jurassic Park and being like, I know I'm only in fifth grade, but I will understand chaos theory. I will keep <laughs> reading this until I finally understand it. Oh, my God. God. Is there chaos theory? I thought that was just like a pickup line. Oh, it's like a significant part of the novel. Like yeah. some of the chapters are just like, here's all this <laughs> chaos theory for you. And I was like, okay. That sounds great. A little bit like Westworld, actually, where it's like we're kind of where it's like the bicameral mind, and like we're throwing words out there at you. You know, uh, it's like, am I really picking up on what they're putting down? Don't know, but the no, words sound fancy. That's when the show's at its worst. No, that bicameral mind shit You're is like working it? for me. Yeah, I'm, I was eating it up. I felt like it's so inelegant of like, they're like, and now we're going to give you our thesis. I think a lot of it, well, yeah, they do hit you with the thesis a little bit. I think a lot of it, a lot of it works because it comes through Anthony Hopkins, who I think like, talk about, I mean, it also probably is like, this is a cakewalk for him, but I think he's really magnetic. I think uh, rewatching the pilot, and uh, so I rewatched this morning, and I made Emily watch it, who hasn't seen anything else, but I was like, the show minds so much out of the character of Robert Ford, like having not the reaction you think. Like an android yeah. will say something freaky and everyone else will go, oh, and he'll just give like a little smile and be like, interesting, isn't it? My little android friends. And so you just are like <laughs> constantly watching him, like wondering what his end game is. You know, he clearly has machinations. He clearly has some weird habits, like going down into the basement to drink with an old android who is uh, Michael Wincott from Basquiat as Rene Ricard, oh, same guy. He plays the, the like, old one who goes, that's a humdinger of a story, partner. Yeah, so, bartender. Yeah, so I thought, I thought Anthony Hopkins' contributions to the ensemble oh, mm-hmm. and to the mystery are really good. Although I have no disappointment in seeing him, like, killed off at the end of season one because it really feels like one of those, like... Where else can you go? Step out of the way. Like, you you did a great, like, you invested this with a lot of, like, your Hopkins energy, and you served a really good function, but now it's time to, like, let other people kind of have, you know, the, the things, like, the good things that happened in seasons two and three of Game of Thrones once, like, Ned Stark was out of the way, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like, okay, we get to really, like, dig into some of these other mm-hmm. characters. Mm-hmm. I'm realizing, sort of thanks to things you both just said, like, I'm wondering if part of the reason that Maeve works for me when the rest of the show doesn't is that I think... In her character arc, the sort of fun of the Westworld and the depth of, like, the themes both mm-hmm. feel very active and present mm-hmm. all the time. Whereas I think with something like 
Jeffrey Wright and Anthony Hopkins, like their characters are almost like static in a way. Mm. Like you're really, they're in a holding place until a big reveal comes. And Mm -hmm. so what they are is, as you had mentioned, Rachel, it feels like they're sometimes just like speaking the thesis of whatever the show Mm. is, but in more of a passive way. And then you have characters like the man in black and William and Logan who are like very active in their sort of fun Westworldy stuff. But to me, like there's really nothing deep there. Like that's just, they're just shooting up and it's kind of like not smart at all. It's a little bit to me, the show like, trying to have the its cake and eat it too. And so it's like these two separate threads that both wind up feeling like a holding pattern because you're waiting for the thinky, intellectual Jeffrey Wright stuff to become more active and you're waiting for the fun Westworld Man in Black stuff to become like deeper mm-hmm. with those twists. But with Maeve, it's like her story is actually actively happening throughout. Like she is discovering things about herself in a very active way where she's able to sort of be awake in the Westworld, the like behind the scenes park, but she still keeps her like fun saloon madam Mm -hmm. energy throughout. Mm -hmm. And then the way that they're dramatizing her like questions about her life and her, you know, what it's like to be a robot. Like that all feels very active as opposed to, you know, a lot of Dolores. Like I think it's a very compelling performance from Evan Rachel Wood, but the whole season is like you just basically waiting for her to figure something out. Mm -hmm which I think to me just feels less active than what they give Maeve to do throughout. Yeah, with Maeve, she's not, you're not waiting. There's no waiting to catch up with anything. It's yeah. just happening in real time. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about why that seems to blend so many of the elements of the show into such a successful little like single narrative. And I like that a lot of the narratives do all feel like they all play into one thing, kind of. Um, But hers is kind of like just darting in and out through it. Mm -hmm. Like she has one of my favorite um, like like sci-fi freak out moments when she's talking saying like I choose what I say and he's Mm -hmm. showing her the dialogue tree on the little tablet. That was such a good juicy little sci-fi moment. You see her like twitch and process it. I think it, it, it just is like such a it's such a fun hook that that character is like by this sort of like fluke is has access to this little like gap through the walls of reality but as you say like the thing that leads her into it is the personality that she had been given just to sort of like decorate the fact that she has this like i'm a survivor yeah this like devil may care survivor like dry humor but like very ultimately like self-preservationist although like self-preservation is the way that leads her to like get herself killed like time and time again Mm -hmm. it just is all really juicy although image the they do it again like they like call it back again bigger when she's in the tent on fire but the end of like (laughs) episode four the she's with hector Mm -hmm. (laughs) whom i also enjoy like he he fulfills his function oh yeah and he's like what does this mean and she's like it means i'm right and none of this matters and then just like like pulls him in and they make out as like the the bullets are shooting as bullets are like blasting through the door i was like oh fuck yeah that rules <laughs> this is great and i yeah. also love her whole dynamic with felix the guy that works at the at westworld but like likes the androids he's like the pro android guy i really like that actor mm-hmm. leonardo nam who was in did you guys ever see the perfect score the Chris Evans movie where they have to steal the oh SAT yeah scores. yes yeah he's the like stoner guy 
that is with them. And it's like such a goofy comedic performance. And then in Westworld, he's just like really nice robot or not a robot, but like a a robot repair man. Man. And I really love his little dynamic with. Oh, uh, it's so it's it becomes so sweet and so touching in a weird way. Yeah. He also has in a show that has like not that many funny bits. He has to me the funniest moment in the entire show when he sees it's in a dramatic sort of like moment when he sees that Bernard is dead and she's like he was a host he goes no he can't and then like without hitting this oh, moment yeah. on the on the head to her he just like looks at his hands for a second for a moment where i didn't realize what was going on if something was wrong with his hands and then i'm like oh and then maybe he's like no you're not one <laughs> it's just so, so funny, funny. Uh, yeah. yeah so yeah, funny yeah who else are we ed harris how do we feel about the man in black performance and character rachel what are your thoughts uh my thoughts are you know a little self-indulgent and fun but it doesn't bother me i don't think there's too much heart there i think that there's a lot of like i'm gonna growl now (laughs) and i'm gonna speak a little slow but um yeah it doesn't bother me neutral he, to me, I think it is very smart of the show to cast Ed Harris in this role. Mm-hmm. I love Ed Harris. I yes. think with with an actor even an ounce less charismatic, I think this role would be, like, borderline unwatchable. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Because most of what it is is just him going around doing violent things and sort of monologuing about how he, <laughs> I don't know, needs to do violent things or whatever. If anything, I think his most interesting moments are, and I kind of wish the show did this more, And this was something you were sort of hinting at, Ned, with like, why don't we see more guests? But moments where other guests that we don't even quite realize are guests, but are sort of on on a mission with him will come over and be like, oh, by the way, like, I just wanted to say, like, thank you so much for your charity work you do in the real world. And he's always like, fuck you, I'm on vacation, don't talk to me. (laughs) But it's a it is a really interesting this idea that maybe the show doesn't get out enough, but that there that people are free to act differently in the park than they do in real life. And Mm -hmm. so the idea that, you know, whatever, that this is like Bill Gates, who on his vacation goes off to like murder people on a, in a robot park is kind of an interesting idea. But because we stay within the confines of the park, most of what we see is just the man in black, like, you know, slitting people's throats and draining their blood and <laughs> lots of times, <laughs> whatever being mean to the robots. Yes, lots of that. Yeah, he I wrote down Early on, I was like, I don't understand his character, but I assume he's like that lady who has seen Sleep No More like 400 times. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So there's like, I didn't, I should, I should look this up, but there, like, I recall a story. There's an immersive theater show in New York, which is another thing that probably is like as close as you can get to Westworld right now, where you walk around and you participate and you can interact with people and, you know, you have a certain degree of license to like interact with them in a way that I would say is like sort of transgressive by normal theatrical conduct now there also is like a culture of like unpunished like sexual harassment from guests to performers again like tying into this whole thing but there's like there's a story of a lady who i think of as thought is known well known to the cast and i think thought of as harmless if a little strange but who has just seen the show like literally hundreds of times oh my god um so I was just assuming that that's what Ed Harris's character mm-hmm. was. I was like, I assume he's just like a, and interestingly, I mean, as it wrong. goes along, mm-hmm. yeah, no, that really is basically what there is to him. He sort of is like on this hunt for a quote unquote the maze, but I found that to be a little bit of a red herring in the plot. Yeah, I mean, I guess like it's about maze isn't meant for you. Yes, it's meant for the it's meant for the <laughs> androids. Um, he is his character 
works for me acknowledging that he's all the way over on the end of the spectrum where all he's doing is chewing scenery and as you say caroline like it is the charisma of ed harris of just knowing like he's just so good at this Mm -hmm. like what they've asked him to do here is so thoroughly in his wheelhouse just being like a tough cowboy badass and delivering lines like when they're like I can have my boy there dig another grave for you. And he goes, this would be mighty tight fit for all of you. It's just like, <laughs> he just sells those like very traditional cowboy mm-hmm. lines well. But that's like the main thing going on with the character. It's one note, yeah. but boy, does he play it well. Yes. Yeah. Well said. Well said. How about, um, how about Logan and Billy? What do we think of them? Thumbs down from me. Sorry, Thumbs bro. <laughs> <laughs> this is this breaks my heart to say because I love Ben Barnes. Like I really mm-hmm. feel like one of the biggest... Ben Barnes fans. I have loved him since his Prince Caspian days. I think wow. he's very good on the Punisher TV show. I think, and this this goes back to the Man in Black too, but in the way that the Westworld Park is all of these little robots in their little loops where they're kind of stuck in the, doing their one thing. I think the show can fall into that trap with its characters. So it's mm-hmm. like, okay, Logan is the jerk rich guy. And I don't think they really add any nuance to that. Every scene is just him being like, Billy, man, why don't you fuck a lady and kill a robot? Like, I find him almost unwatchable and how annoying he is. And I think similarly, like, William is very one note in his in his white hat thing. And then the man in black is very one note in his black hat thing. And even Bernard is pretty one note in his little mumbly robot thing and those like you're saying rachel those notes aren't bad per se and the actors play them impeccably but it's like i want each character to be layered Mm. as opposed to each character being one thing that then we have to just watch for 10 episodes Mm -hmm. but it sounds ned like you were getting more out of logan and and william than i did Uh, when i say logan is a great character what i mean is what he brings to it i could have done with even a little bit less by screen time of him like the episodes where they are at the front and center are probably in my mind the weakest episodes. The one where they like go to the big golden painted sex party and like are mm-hmm. riding with the Confederados, you know, it's like I think that's the worst episode. Yeah. I agree. At least. I agree it is. Um although I like it more. I, I feel like interestingly, taking a step back, like the character of Billy into the man in black is an interesting one. And looking back, like when you get that twist, you're like, oh, they add up to a whole, oh, that was my effect of it. Mm -hmm. Um, As for Logan, when I say he's a great character, what I mean is I think he brings something valuable, which is like reminding us. Because as I say, so much of it becomes like a drama between cowboys who are searching an existential truth. And he reminds us that like the park is populated with like, like crass fuckboys. So having him like go into these situations that Billy is inclined to take seriously and be like, fuck yeah, I pwned you motherfuckers, you know, (laughs) like that, that is fun to me. And I'm glad we don't lose it. I don't know about like where they end up at the end. I do like the sort of subversion that you sort of take at face value that Billy is always going to be sort of a beta to him until it just builds to this place where you're like, oh, now he's going to be like the ascendant ed harris character Mm -hmm. it does interesting things with status but i would say like in the way where i say like i lit up when we were gonna go to a mave scene like kind of not so much for those two i don't know Mm -hmm. rachel i love jimmy simpson i could do without logan um Mm -hmm. i i think that like i think some of the more interesting dolores scenes happen with billy and logan so i like it for that but i don't like it for billy and logan 
Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that subplot about the Confederados is kind of like, mm, what are you, what are you doing? Why do I care? What am I? Right, a little bit time filly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and and sort of like vamping a little bit until yeah. the timeline reveal can catch up. But you know, I it doesn't. I would say, in a weird way, I like it better than the Man in Black scenes because. Mm-hmm. With the man in black scenes, it's the same scene every single time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, uh, yes. Um, and it's not going anywhere because every single scene is just, I'm looking for the maze. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, whereas, at least with the Confederados, it is going somewhere, even if that sure. somewhere isn't the most interesting part of the show to me. Um, at least it's not the same scene every single time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing I was, like, I do kind of understand why you've watched, especially this first season so many times, Rachel, because I was I was actually finding it very compelling to try to track the Dolores timeline of it all, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. they do sort of have this idea, like, they're in the pilot in the pilot scene, there's a moment where the man in black is like, oh, they've given you more, like, you have more, like, of a spunky personality than you used to have, or something like that. And so on this rewatch in particular, I was like, oh, yeah. So, like, theoretically, in the scenes where she's with Jimmy Simpson, she is, like, a younger, earlier version of herself that's maybe a little bit more innocent and sort of trying to contrast with the, like, I guess the present-day Dolores, but then also contrast with, like, the Dolores that's doing all those scenes with what we think is Bernard, but which ultimately turns out to be Arnold, where he is sort of, like, questioning her consciousness, which I think is, like, the youngest Dolores we see and like it is an it is an interesting challenge because part of the character is that she has to be consistent the whole way, especially for the timeline thing not to be totally obvious. But I was finding little interesting moments within, like, oh yeah, this is like physically she's changed in this time, or mm-hmm. emotionally she's changed from this time to this time. So that was something I was maybe a little bit more locked in on a rewatch than I was in my first viewing, obviously. Yeah, since I didn't know it was coming. And I think that Jeffrey Wright is actually doing some super subtle but super incredible he's playing around with that too of when he actually is arnold and not bernard when he is the real human being arnold i was noticing from an acting standpoint like his body is more relaxed and free physically it's more open physically it's more fluid physically and i just thought that that was a such a small but fascinating detail that he as an actor put in of like you know emotionally both of the characters feel like they're the same like it feels true it feels there's a real through line but physically the robot is just the tiniest whisper more stilted Mm. it's very interesting and like giving this when you give the show the like the full benefit of the doubt to be able to look at that and be like okay is that something to do with like the robot's ability to mimic humans is that something to do with the fact that bernard is at this point, Ford's editorial version of his own memory of his yeah. like, former friend. There just like are so many questions that I find so fascinating to like dig into about all of this. And like, yeah, I think I think the ways in which androids work as a sci-fi idea I find so interesting. Not not in. I agree, Caroline, not in a sense of, like, are the androids dangerous for us, but for, like, what are the ethics of mm. consciousness? There's a, yeah. there's, a, there's a line that when I was just scrolling through my notes, I just pulled up, and 
Ford saying, I-, I built your mind, Bernard. I have every right to wander through its rooms and halls and chambers and change it if I like. And I'm like, does he, though? I Whoa. don't think so. Also, Ned, you're killing it with the impressions today, mm-hmm. I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. I guess when I write down the exact uh, when I write down the exact quotes, they like come back to me in that phrasing. But well, it yeah. is interesting. This is a sort of maybe. A, also, I want to say I don't want to like drag you guys like like this show, so I don't mean to keep like bringing up things that are not good and making. You oh, I'm. Me. You're welcome I'm, to. I'm happy to talk about it. Okay, you're welcome to celebrate the things you like too. But I do think maybe in terms of like the morality of what the show is exploring, like. It's certainly raising questions of, like, is it ethical that all of these humans are coming and, like, sort of abusing these robots, but obviously they think they are robots, and I don't I don't know if I find that as interesting or as shocking as the show thinks it is, per se. The show is sort of being like, oh, anyone that would come to this park would be horrible, aren't you shocked by that? And I'm like, well, I guess so, but you kind of made it up, so I don't know if I'm like, <laughs> like, I don't know if I buy that everyone co- that comes here would be as horrible as they are. And then even if they are, is it like this, like if you are truly told that this is a robot you're dealing with, is it bad to be (laughs) mean to it? Like if I'm mean to my computer, is that bad? I don't think so. I think it's, I think, well, it's tricky when the robots advance to this place where like they, I don't know. It's like if I was promised, like they're just acting out things we programmed them. I think it's ethically acceptable to be, I mean, I think like it is okay to step back and be like, why do we want to do this? Like, why do we want to go in and kill things? But I don't know that it's unethical to kill them. I think there are, I I think the question of like, and this is a question that we may be examining as a society in the next hundred years. Like Mm -hmm. if a thing gets so advanced that it can like ask existential questions, I don't know what the line is, Right. but like at that point, Shouldn't it have rights, you know, like under law? Yeah, that kind of stuff I'm interested in, actually, in the show, like the behind the scenes of Westworld, I actually find more interesting than the actual one. Like, I feel like there's parts of the show where they're just like, whoa, isn't it shocking that Logan did that? And I'm sort of like, "Eh, no, it just felt like you sort of wanted to have a violent scene. So you put it in Mm -hmm. there. I feel like like the question of how the guests are interacting with the robots and the robots being so mad at the guests are less interesting to me than like the people that created the robots and how they're dealing with the robots. I agree that the ethics of creating self-aware AI from the creator perspective is the interesting one. The other stuff feels to me like sort of a parallel of commentary of like, is it fucked up people who play Grand Theft Auto and just drive around and they just shoot all the people on the street? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. I think that's a that's a tricky question because it like, you know, like it nobody is getting hurt there. But mm-hmm. but yeah, I think that the like the central idea of like when has a when has an android become so self-aware that it is that it deserves to be treated with the same like care and protection as a human mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is an interesting one. I think one of the most interesting questions, though, doesn't kind of come up until season three, which is when it really very explicitly equates these these hosts, these robots, with dispossessed humans. Mm-hmm. With and, and, and it's like how we dehumanize other humans, not just how we dehumanize AI and robots, but how we dehumanize each other. And it, there's this, I think it's, so smart and so intentional that it's set in the back in against the backdrop of the American West, which is mm-hmm. a history of exploitation 
and romanticizing that exploitation. It's a history mm-hmm. of displacement, dispossession, extreme violence, racism, and yet we romanticize it. Oh, that's the American mm-hmm. ideal, independence, the cowboy. It's not a it's not a coincidence that that's the backdrop of the show. And I think that the questions that it's asking about like you've got this digital wonderland and you go in and how do you treat this digital wonderland? You deforest it, you depopulate it, you kick out the natives, you and the show has actually I think not even at all engaged with the racial politics, you know, inherent of being a Western. Mm-hmm. But um but but in the in season three it it's a similar thing of like you go into this brand new world and how do you treat the people in this brand new world? Whether those people are robots or people without money. One of the interesting things that the show repeatedly questions is it, it, there's one time when Bernard, you know, begs, he says, you know, to Ford, why did you give me these memories? Why did you give me these yeah. painful memories of this lost child, this child who dies? And then he kind of comes to the conclusion that, you know, Ford is like, well, I can take that away if you want. And he comes to the conclusion, no, don't take that away. The pain is all I have left of him. Mm -hmm. And there's another time when the man in black says, when you're suffering, that's when you're most real. I like the idea of those like cornerstone memories they Mm -hmm. have, which is what it turns out that Bernard's like memory of his fake dead son is that like you need a sort of like cornerstone that drives your personality i think that is actually a really interesting idea and Mm -hmm. how much this idea of when they were for i almost want like the westward westworld prequel when um bernard and uh or sorry when arnold and ford were first making the robots and going through all the trial and Mm -hmm. error of sort of how to make them the most realistic Mm because i feel like at one point they settle on they sort of all need to have a little element of tragedy to feel human Mm -hmm. which is kind of an interesting idea that there needs to be a level of sadness for people to to buy in to them being human. And then also the question of like, do you want them to feel fully human? And like, should our robots that we're killing, maybe they should feel a little bit like robots so that we don't carry that murderous desire out into the real world in the same way, I think is an interesting one. Yeah, Sizemore actually says this place only works because the guests know the hosts aren't real. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I mean, I, you know, I was also having questions like, this place must be like, a lawsuit nightmare because there must be guests attacking other guests all the time like not realizing that they're guests right like it seems like oh yeah this would just be a nightmare of a place to run and like actually keep people safe if it was a real park that question is a little bit hand waved of like because jimmy simpson asks it and then gets kind of like a like a violent non-answer from logan like how do i know if he's a host or a guest he's like well you can shoot him but right. I, I do i do wonder about about some of those logistics but but I think, again, that it's like, yeah, these questions of like, oh, is it if fundamentally human to like have pain and suffering? Like, yeah, I think that's a fun. Again, I just think these like these like things that are raised are interesting. It's also interesting that Sizemore is like one of the least likable. I said Logan mm-hmm. and Sizemore are leading a tight race for the least likable people on the show. But him and uh, him and Tessa Thompson's like, oh, yeah, we yeah, should yeah. just make the robots a little simpler. I'm like, that doesn't sound like a necessarily a bad idea to me. I think that would be fine since you're trying to run a park. Oh, yeah. Every time I think I might share Rachel's reaction to what I if I was reading correctly, a, a, maybe a hesitancy about the Tessa Thompson performance there. Performance and character. Yes. Yeah. But I actually do like her idea of like 
because it's similar to mine. Like, why are the hell are we running a national park size theme park? Like, why don't we just make this simple and like have f- two towns and people could do whatever they want? I'm like, yes, actually, yeah. Charlotte, that's a great idea. You should really simplify here. Oh, yeah. From a corporate standpoint, she's right. She's absolutely right. I mean, it's like, I think the if you want to make that sort of dissonance uh, seem intentional, it has to be that like Ford and Arnold like actually were the wrong people to run the theme park because their mission is like to actually create life. Yeah. yeah. Not to. And it's interesting because it seems Which like. I guess is what Arnold realized. And that's what Arnold wanted to do that. And then Ford fought him, but it seems like at the end, Ford is like, he does want the robots to take over or something. I don't entirely feel like I I understood it, but I felt it. I feel like it basically took Ford 30 years to be like, oh, actually, Arnold was right. Or maybe not 30 full years. It took him a long time to realize Arnold was right. And then he spent many years putting into motion a plan that would enable Arnold's original plan to happen. But in terms of running a theme park, yes, they probably should just make it smaller, simpler, more just like things that are conspicuously robots. And then it would be, I think that drive is good. As another, as another incentive to get you to keep watching that, I actually think Sizemore has a really cool arc across the next two seasons. He's a character that I think is kind of one note here and that I now have a lot of affection for based on where he goes. So I hated him in season one, but in season two, he's such a sweetie. Yeah. They do some fun stuff with him. That is fun. That's nice to know. So he and Tessa Thompson stick around, I assume. Yeah. I think Tessa Thompson's most interesting season is season three. Hmm. Yeah, I would agree. But then by the end of season three, they totally undercut any development there was, which is really unfortunate and an unforced error. But hey, I don't run the show, so. Season three is so bizarre. Didn't it? It came out during the pandemic, right? Like it was filmed pre-pandemic. I feel like we all collectively like, people watch that. We're like, we will collectively never speak of or (laughs) acknowledge this season again. It's so unfortunate because I think they did, they finished filming before the pandemic but my my sense is that at least half of the post-production was all done during the first months of the pandemic so like i know Mm -hmm. that tundiwe newton was recording her adr on her iphone in her car jeez jeez yeah so like it was real bootleg stuff Mm -hmm. (laughs) um for the post-production for season three but that does not excuse the poor writing choices. So, agreed. Agreed. Are there other big the- things in this first season that we feel like we haven't touched on yet? Some James Marsden. I guess we kind of shouted <gasps> oh, him out Marsden briefly. Is great. But Marsden's such a get. That's such the perfect person oh, for that role. Love James Marsden. Yeah. What a good-looking human being. Wow. Really oh wow. Oh wow. It's like it's another one of those roles that like if you didn't have that person like would it function as well? Certainly no. that initial twist of him being you're like yeah James Marsden will play the sort of like regular guest cipher every man that I'll follow through, and then I'm like oh no he's a robot he's a robot um, yeah I thought that he is is great between Ed Harris Ben Barnes. Rodrigo Santoro, who plays Hector, who I know, I always think of as the guy from Love Actually that almost dates Laura Linney. What? You just blew my mind. That's who that is? Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Her, like, 
I think he's Brazilian, the actor. Wow. He's, got some, he's got some great lines and great deliveries in this. Yeah, Brazilian. Um, between I, Ed Harris, I guess, is famous, but James Marsden, Ben Barnes, and Rodrigo Santoro, those are like my three guys, like <laughs> kind of randomly. And the fact that Westworld has all of them, in the way that, that Ned Westworld is speaking to like, you love cowboys and robots, like Westworld to me is like, here's three <laughs> somewhat similar looking men that you enjoy. We'll put them all into one show for you. Yeah. I think it is maybe the best cast in television Mm. it is just just diamond after diamond i like the strength of that take me too i don't know the weird thing though is like and you'd sort of mentioned this before caroline is that they're all kind of on their own tracks though they don't necessarily interact all that much Mm -hmm. which is a disappointment because you've got these stellar stellar performers kind of doing solos yeah, that's a very good call. And I want to see them play with each other more. Like, mm-hmm. I, to actually be an ensemble. I don't think we see um, Maeve and Dolores interact once in season one. Yeah, and- just that one. She's the one that, like, gets Dol- – she, like, tells her the violent delights have violent ends, but it's a very, like, a passing – it's not like oh, a scene. Yeah. It's just kind of like we pass in the street and I told you this line that then set you off on your own journey. That's but- the thing that sets off Maeve because I couldn't remember that. Yes. Yes, it's because somehow Dolores has been set off first uh, with that phrase, maybe from her dad, from her and dad. then she says it to Maeve. But then they never interact again. They're just separate. But you've got these two of your stars of your shows have one three-second scene. The man in black and Bernard never interact until the mm-hmm. last episode of season two. Like, what a weird construct that you've got these amazing, incredible actors stars the show and they never share any scenes it's just so weird look it all comes back to the fact that westworld the park is physically too big (laughs) really you just want them bumping into each other they run into each other and there's five other parks what is the size of this island like where yeah where is this built on like is this australia is all of australia yeah this is like a continent size island here's the thing if we assume that at this point in the century they can travel to wherever they could be in just one of the many like enormous swaths of land in the united states that has like nothing but a farm on it it's like mm-hmm. we forget because we live in these like in these like insanely densely crowded cities but it's like you could just buy like you know ten thousand acres in the middle of mm-hmm. you know wyoming or idaho that right now is probably owned just by the Koch brothers yeah to graze cattle on yeah and be like now we're gonna put people in the the hyperloop and send them out there yeah, but like within the world of what within the park of Westworld, they'll like take a multi-day journey out somewhere, then get on a train and be <laughs> on a train for two days, and then they reach a destination. And I'm like, oh my what? God. how big is You're this? So right. Uh, yeah. And I get the distinct impression from seasons two and three that this is a man-made island in the South China Sea. Oh, and it's like, cool. yeah, there are man-made islands in the South China Sea, but. But to your point, like multi-day journey by them. horse plus multi-day journey by train <laughs> plus another multi-day journey by a horse. What is the size of this place? And that's just Westworld. That's not Shogun World. Right. That's not the, you know, four other worlds. So uh, I really want to know about those other worlds, but can I, that, that'll be for my next season that I watch. Can I ask, am I alone in this call and thinking that it would be really cool to go to Westworld? What do y'all think? Would you want to go? I feel like it's like going to North Korea. It's so cool, but is (laughs) it ethical? (laughs) Is it (laughs) interesting? Like, it's fascinating, 
you would learn so many interesting things and observe so many interesting things, but who are you benefiting? Who are you helping? Maybe I just want to go to Sizemore and Hale's Westworld, where it's like, they're just animatronics. It's just the Hall of Presidents. <laughs> but you get to, you yeah. know, really, it's like, I want to wear a costume and, like, ride around on the train. I mean, yeah, it sounds people. very fun. And, like, the history nerd in me is like, yeah, I want to go live in the Wild West for a little bit. I want to, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, I'm so conflicted about it. But, yes, the history nerd and the actor in me wants to play dress up and go experience a different time. Yeah, just Maybe we should just be LARPers. I think the way Westworld is – maybe this is another, like, holdup I have, but – I sort of don't get why the average person would want to go there. Like, unless you are a Logan type who wants to go and just, like, have sex with everyone and shoot everyone and, like, be bad all the time. Like, at some point they reference, like, families are coming there. And mm-hmm. I'm like, who the hell would take their child to this place where people are getting gunned down in the streets in the, like, quote-unquote safe town where you first arrive? Like, to me, this would be more realistic if there was a part of the park that was actually, like, more innocent. And then, as they say, it, like, gets worse as it goes out. I think the families mostly go to the Raj, which you see in season yeah, two. Maybe. And it seems very plush and like going on a 1920s uh, vacation, vacation to a luxury yeah. hotel. There is, you do see those cute little, the family with the cute little kid that goes out and sees the horses in the first episode. I, I right. Yeah, I guess there is violence in Sweetwater, but I, I, I get the, I mean, like, Ren Fairs are hugely popular and like, people go like... M- Tons of people like dress up for those. I think like the idea to go, like the idea that all kinds of people, not just us, like nerdy freaks, three nerdy freaks on this call, <laughs> but all kinds of people want to like dress up and go to a place that feels like it's a slightly different world. Like that makes a lot of sense to me. Oh, me too. I think that the question I have then is how violent and openly sexual Great Westworld question. is for your average like visitor which maybe obviously it's not supposed to be their average visitor because it's this weird like insane playground for the rich Mm -hmm. but it does feel like the openness like sometimes people will just like yeah sometimes Sweetwater's normal but if a guest just wants to walk up and shoot somebody in the head in the middle of the street that's like affecting the experience of all the other guests but the show doesn't really acknowledge that Mm. but like if i was there to have a fun larping historical time would i want like the character I'm talking to, somebody else just comes up and kills them. Like, it feels like you wouldn't want to go with other people there. If you'd yeah. want to go on, like, a private Westworld tour where yeah. you can, right? Because you're trying to escape humanity. I feel like the worst part of Westworld would be your other guests. They do raise that, like, that concept of, like, going alone. Like, the guy you hear on the train in the beginning is like, I went once with the family and I, like, mm-hmm. did a white hat. And the second time I went pure evil, which is, like, <laughs> that is so funny to me because it just feels like that that same thing happens in honor-based video games where you'll do a good playthrough and then be like now I want to go do the evil playthrough and see all the other like different cutscenes but I do think that the show has chosen to take the interesting but not I think authentically realistic conceit that like everyone like wants to kill and like mm-hmm. given the opportunity what every single person wants to do is like fucking kill and that like yeah when I think, or maybe Rachel's right that you just you go to Westworld if those are the things you want to do, and if you don't want to do those, you go to like Jane Austen World or whatever the other <laughs> <Yeah>. like <laughs> worlds are for different types of personalities. You ready to get spoiled, Ned, for the other worlds? Hit, no, hit me. Yeah, hit me. So we got Shogun World, aka Samurai World, which uh-huh. is I do not want to go there. That is, if you think Westworld's violent, man. Shogun okay. World is brutal. Constant dismemberments, disembowelings, oh, etc. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Great. 
Um, so that's one. There's the that's like sign me up. <laughs> no, it's, I think it's gonna be, I would not want to kill. Like I don't kill video game characters, and no one's watching me. You know, like mm-hmm. innocent. You know, I, I I'm like hesitate to like steal from video game. I would probably not be killing people, but I'm like. Okay, gotcha. The vibe sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I well, I think that. they do have some like storylines. They they talk about like Sizemore derisively talks about some like boring storylines where you just like go up into the hills and look for gold, and it's like, like the homesteaders. Yeah. So I think you can self select yeah. right. more yeah. tame, less violent storylines. Mm-hmm. But what else have we got? Um, we've got. So we got Samurai, Shogun World. We've got um, the Raj, which is basically the British occupation of India in the early part of the 20th century. Very opulent. Like intentionally prop. The show commenting on the intentional problematic yeah. setup of a thing like Westworld and being able to be like, yeah. let's go to horrible parts of the past, but say that they were good. Yeah. 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 There is a medieval world. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's a World War II world, isn't there? There is a World War II world. Yeah, mm. I think it it vaguely seemed like it was maybe set in northern Italy in World War II, but I don't mm-hmm. really. Okay, it wasn't so specific on that. And um, is that it? You would know better than me. I'd forgotten there was a medieval world at all. Yeah. So, Caroline, when you mentioned a Jane Austen storyline, like where mm-hmm. would you? Okay, if a park was, if if you could go to one of these kind of like historical reenactment and it can be the like rose tinted romanticized historical reenactment Mm -hmm. what's your what's your park maybe like just to tie it back to the podcast like a little women park Mm -hmm. because i really want to wear those dresses that they wear in that era (laughs) and just like hang out and see what it was like i would be very boring i guess i didn't think this when I asking this question, but the other day I was listening to Sunday in the Park with George, and I was like, I would love to go like get to cosplay as like the the impressionists, like La Belle Epoque Paris. Oh my god, <laughs> that's that's maybe dumb. It's like kind, it'd probably be like a lot like our current world, but like you have sure. a tighter like vest and uncomfortable clothing. But yeah. I don't know, the, the fashion is part of it for me. Rachel, oh gosh, that is hard to say. I mean. Jurassic Park. Sure. I'll <laughs> But the dinosaurs are robots. Uh, we'll do Jurassic Park, maybe like ancient Egypt world, like Ooh. But again, super racially problematic and exploitative yeah. of like major class differences. But I mean, I guess that's kind of the point of these things is you're right. you're you're it's letting you engage in a consequence-free quote unquote way with pretty problematic but romantic you know, dynamics. What about, can I pitch to both of you? Please. What about like you go to the globe and like hang out with Shakespeare and mm. like get to be in one of the shows or something? Sure. Or get to see it. Why that not? would be chill. I mean, I when I, this is the thing about like looking at the past. I'm like, mm, I feel like a lot of poop water getting thrown out windows onto the streets yeah. in those days. But, uh, but yeah. Maybe they take, maybe they clean oh, it up a little. Again, I, it's romanticized. If I'm just living yeah. in Shakespeare in love, you know, sounds like a yeah. dream. I want to do like just peak Russian czar Ooh. opulence, you know? Yes. Just like yeah. we are drinking our tea and our vodka in our furs and <laughs> talking about literature and there are no consequences. And Nicholas Holt is there as a crazy Russian. Sure. Man, as he is on the TV show, and The Great. Like they all, if they're romanticized and you get to be whoever the like ruling class was, sure. Yeah, right. Lots of times in history would be. <laughs> that is the key, fun. the ruling class. You always want yeah. to be the ruling yeah. class. Do you all, leaving Android aside, do you all know about the Westworld pop-up at South by Southwest? Have you heard of this? No. Nope. So at South by Southwest to promote the second season, 
they constructed Sweetwater on two <gasps> acres of land. Oh, they what? had 60 Whoa. actors playing hosts. And Rachel, they should have hired you to play Dolores. They should have. My God, what a missed opportunity for HBO. I know. <laughs> You're right about they that. They had you on call for Boardwalk Empire. They needed to get, They needed to pick up that phone. They didn't know. connect the dots, and it's their fucking loss. The funny thing is, when I got cast on that, the, and I called my mom, and I was like, Mom, I got a role. And she's like, oh, my gosh. And I was like, it's on HBO. And the first thing she said, she didn't say congratulations. She said, are you naked? It's a great oh question. Oh, my God. And a really valid, valid question. question for HBO and these kind of prestige drama shows that yeah. treat it. But one thing that like struck me about watching this and there is so much nudity as we mentioned is that like you know it we it treats the nudity as super dehumanizing of like the hosts because it's the hosts Mm -hmm. that are nude not the not the guests for the most part and so it's this super dehumanizing thing but it's so strange because nudity is the most human thing Mm. and we are so disconnected from our own humanity from our own natural state of being that we see the most pure natural expression of being human as so awful. Yeah. That self-loathing in us. Yeah, because we are in this twisted up idea that like, you know, your body is shameful and clothes are like give you status. It creates this Mm -hmm. like status dynamic. I think it really works to have like, at first I was a little like HBO, like, I had this thought of just like the pitching, pitching this to the HBO exec and being like, now they have this facility and it's filled with androids. The androids are naked, hot human women. Uh, The HBO exec being like, okay, I can see it. I do think that like they really front load a lot of like, like model looking women naked in the first episode. And as it goes along, they are doing like. I don't know. There's a lot of dong in this show more than in Game Mm -hmm. of Thrones, which I appreciate. Mm -hmm. Uh, And like you know. Just some I, I scraggly do feel dudes. Some scraggly dudes. I do appreciate that, like, in the fullness of the show, it feels like it is making a statement about the way in which they are treated as objects. Yeah. And, like, the mm-hmm. visual of, like, a gigantic, like, cold storage freezer filled with, like, just, like, naked bodies is, mm-hmm. is I think, an effective and chilling one. Although I, I do just continue to think about all the people who are like, Mom, Dad, I booked a gig. Please don't watch. I am just a naked statue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just my yeah. full frontal naked body standing still. <laughs> there was a scene that's just Evan Rachel Wood sitting in one chair and Anthony Hopkins in the other, and he's fully clothed and she's naked. And I'm like, imagine just doing a scene with like legendary actor Anthony Hopkins and you're just like, oh, sitting there naked. Like, wouldn't you feel like yes, just so strange? I would have to take a lot of Xanax in order to yeah. make that okay. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Oh, man. But I think it's worth noting that both Evan Rachel Wood and Tandiwe Newton are survivors of sexual assault and sexual abuse and sexual harassment. And they have both been pretty upfront about the fact that, like, it was very important to them in doing this show that it wasn't exploitative. Exploitative? Exploitative? <laughs> I have no idea. It's like C and M and E. It's like, um, uh, it was very important to them that to both of them that this show for them was like a a survivor statement of like I'm reclaiming my power I'm reclaiming my body I'm reclaiming um my agency and for them both being both playing hosts these disadvantaged exploited entities people characters sort of rising up 
and very explicitly taking revenge on their oppressors, I think was, I, I don't want to, you know, pass that up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think this show dances a very dangerous dance and walks a thin line and sometimes comes on the wrong side of that line of being exploitative instead of making commentary about it. Um, but I think mostly it is successful in staying on the right side of that line. Yeah. I think the stuff that does feel exploitative is sort of within the like quote unquote narrative of the Westworld park. That's where it feels more Game of Thrones thronesy, like, oh, we'll just have some naked sex workers like walking around in the background to give you like sexualized boobs and like really like bloody violence. Whereas I think when they're naked in the like backstage world, it's not sexualized mm-hmm. at all. Like it is really just no. clinical. And I so I think that that feels purposeful in a way that sometimes they're like, let's throw in a bunch of naked women and pariah. That feels more like titillating in the sort of Game of Thrones way. And like, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe they're commenting on it, but are they also commenting on it while doing it? Like those yeah, are the questions yeah. I have. But I actually think the backstage stuff, the sort of clinical nudity doesn't really bother me at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And can be used for like cool commentary. Yeah. A lot of stuff. We've been talking for a long time. Maybe we yeah. Should. I mean, I mean, like, I, I, again, skimming through my notes, I'm like, I could, go, I could just go and go and go and go. But like, I feel like you know, that's Westworld. There are a lot of different ways to respond to it. I'm sure that we have listeners uh, on every end of the spectrum of engagement with this show, um, and it's been a pleasure talking about it. Since this will be our wrap up, I want to just sort of ask: Are there any other Jeffrey Wright projects that we want to shout out that like? We haven't covered today. I kind of mentioned how Source Code, I think, is a really great uh, performance, which is sort of him, Jake Gyllenhaal, and Vera Farmiga in this interesting little sci-fi power question while Jake Gyllenhaal is like reliving an eight-minute time loop on a on a train. What else? I just saw French Dispatch, which is oh, the, yeah. new, the new Wes Anderson movie that came out this year. I really liked the movie, and I loved Jeffrey Wright in it. It might actually be my favorite Jeffrey Wright performance i've ever seen like he's playing this sort of inspired by amongst other people james baldwin writer figure who has this like playfulness but also this melancholy that i just found like really emotionally affecting and lovely and so i am really glad that i got a chance to see that before we recorded and can point other people to it because i thought it was great yeah Yeah. i also saw it yesterday i'm glad you liked it i was like i had a total blast watching it and i Mm -hmm. agree like He's sort of so. He's one of four narrators, all of whom are giving very fun, like Wes Anderson style performances. But his is the one that I think has the most like heart and soul to it. Rachel, any any Jay Wright? I can't think of anything specific, but I just Boardwalk love Empire. the man's beautiful, beautiful voice. Oh yeah, I guess Great watch voice. Boardwalk Empire. Make it to the final episode. Send me two cents Hell and yeah. residuals. I guess. <laughs> yeah. But um. <laughs> Yeah, no, I could listen to that man read any book on tape, so I hope that he does, so I can yeah. listen to it. Good side hustle for Jeffrey Wright reading Alice in Wonderland for us all to listen yeah. to. It has been, for some of the reasons we talked about in the middle of this episode, it's been an interesting getting to like look at his work and his career, and uh, I just hope for more of it. I'm, I want some more comedies from him. That's, that's what mm-hmm. I would like to see yeah. more of. He seemed um, to have a good time in French Dispatch. And it's like, yeah. I don't know that he always has fun while acting. Yeah. So. Give him like a Neil Simon comedy. Yeah. Oh, that sounds that sounds nice. 
So thus ends our Jeffrey Wright miniseries, and uh, thus ends 2021, our first year of doing roll calling. Wow. Um, I mean, we, yeah. I mean, we started in, when did we start releasing episodes? M- April? My instinct was to say May, but I'm not sure. Yeah. I believe this is our 29th episode. It's been a project that has been a lot of fun this year. Um, we don't know for certain if we're going to add any episodes before the end of the year or make our return in 2022. So stay tuned. Check the Twitter. Have a happy holidays and take care of yourselves. Um, I wanted to take a moment to just say how grateful we are for everyone who's turned in to listen to the show this year. Um, you know, your time is precious. If you've given us your time to listen along, I just think that's a very generous thing to do. And we really, really appreciate it. So thank you so much to our listeners. Happy holidays. You're the best. And also, a huge thank you to Rachel. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, hitting us with yeah, your Rachel. your extremely deep Westworld expertise and enthusiasm. <laughs> um, where can our listeners find more of you, Rachel? Well, I'm sort of not so active on Instagram, but if you want to follow me for the four times a year I post, it's rachel.kenny <laughs> uh, is my handle. I am more active on Twitter, mostly retweeting, not so much my own tweets. But um, and on Twitter, you can find me at Rach Kenny, K E N N E Y. Um, and uh, yeah, you can also listen to Walls and I on our podcast. I have a question with Rachel and Walls. We're on a little bit of a hiatus at the moment, but there's plenty of other episodes, some older episodes that you can catch up with until we're back. And they're such a delightful listen. It's like a perfect little like 30 minute chunk in your day. I'll listen to them like doing my stretches or like washing the dishes. And it's very much just like, I mean, you guys are actually my friends chatting, Mm -hmm. but I think even if people don't know you, (laughs) it's that nice sense of two friends chatting. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I would highly recommend. Ah, thanks. Yay. Do you have any other, um, like, so we mentioned our Your Boardwalk Empire appearance. Anything else? Any other projects coming up people should know about or that you've done in the past? Um, If you're in New York City, provided it doesn't get canceled due to the Omicron variant of the coronavirus, uh, I will be in a play at the Tank in January, the first two weekends of January. And we can put those details in the show notes. It's only relevant if you're in New York City in early January. But, you know, hey. (laughs) Yeah. You might be. Yeah. Yeah. Go see. You can see if we were correct in saying that Rachel has some Evan Rachel Wood energy to her. <laughs> yeah, and it's just you know we we keep talking about. I feel like we just we we didn't say this explicitly, but we keep, we've had a lot of guests on from uh, from our college theater program, of which Rachel was one of the stars, yes. the shining Aww. stars. So, um, so it's been fun. It has been. Thanks for having me. Roll calling is produced and recorded by us, Ned Baker and Caroline Sita. Our theme music was created by Patrick Buddy, and our logo was designed by Nick Wanserski. You can follow us on Twitter at RollCalling and email us at RollCalling at gmail.com. That's Roll, R-O-L-E. Please rate and review wherever that's possible. Please share around. We always appreciate that. We'll be back in a month for more RollCalling goodness. Until then. Just taking in some of the natural splendor.